At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We all have questions, and we're all looking for the answers. But sometimes, navigating the answers to cultural issues through the lens of the gospel can be challenging. Join us for our Asking for a Friend series, where each week we'll answer tough questions and provide you with gospel-centered answers that you can share with a friend. Worship team, thank you so much for leading us as we sing out our praise to the one and only God. And what a fitting song to be able to open this time in his word, that he brings light to the darkness. He's the only one that can restore hearts that are broken. It's a perfect lead-in to the word this morning. My name is Bill. I'm one of the teaching elders here at Woodside Algonac, and it is my joy, while Pastor Dan is away with his family on vacation, to be able to bring the word to you this morning. And this morning, we're in our final week in this little mini-series that we've called Asking for a Friend, where we petitioned all 14 of our campuses and asked, what are the tough theological questions that you'd like answers to? And I got the framework for this message to be developed, and I said, oh my goodness, this question, the question up there, is anxiety a sin? I looked and said, oh my goodness, where are we going to go with this? Because it's a tough question to answer, and really there isn't an answer to that question, because If you go to the Bible and look, on one hand, if we say no, right? Anxiety is not a sin. We're going to have trouble with Jesus and trouble with the Bible because he says, don't be anxious about your life. And contradicting Jesus is not a place I want to be. I'm sure you feel that way too. But on the other hand, Jesus himself, in his human form, in the garden, moments before his crucifixion, sweat great drops of blood and what we could consider anxiety on his human person as he was anticipating what was to come and even asked God if this cup could be taken from him. So Jesus displayed anxiety, so there's that. So as we go to the Word, there really isn't a blanket statement of, yes, anxiety is or is not a sin. And we could try to go into the text and wring it and twist it and bring our own meaning into it, isogeet the text. It's a very dangerous thing to do. We don't want to be there. We want to step back and allow the text to speak to us, to exegete, to bring word from the text, from the Spirit to our hearts. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going to allow the text to speak to us regarding anxiety. And we're going to go into the Psalms today. In Psalm 77, that's a great place to go when you're feeling anxious because the Psalms are not these stoic, theological, rigid writings that are devoid of any feelings. The Psalms are packed with emotional language that address the pressures and the anxieties and the cares of this life. And they were written to be sung aloud in groups. So they're full of themes of praise and joy to God, but they're also full of themes of lament and of sorrow that we experience in their lives, in our lives. And they contain an abundance of perspective for us to address how we feel. And it's very important for us all to focus in on this because anxiety is not something reserved for one or two people. It affects all of us. From the youngest of us, elementary through high school and into college age, that's one of the number one problems affecting that age group of people. And all the way up to retirees, 
you're here this morning, anxiety is something we deal with because we are humans living in a fallen world. But we're going to apply Psalm 77 to our anxieties this morning. And it's going to show us how to reorder our cares, how to weigh our cares on the scale against the weight of who God truly is. Back in the 1960s, author and pastor A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he wrote a quote that I use all the time. And if I've used it before, forgive me because I'm recycling it because it fits so perfectly here. He said, a person with a right understanding of God relieves himself of 10,000 temporal issues. Meaning when we take a step back and we focus on who God really is, not who we think he is, not who somebody on TikTok said he is, not who we feel like he should be, but when we take a step back and look, who God, look at who God really is from his word, it's going to help us as we work through our anxieties in light of that awesome God. In the 77th Psalm, as we'll read, is the story of a very anxious heart. We don't know much about the specific situation that was being addressed. It's more of generalities, which is good because we can apply it to many situations. We don't know much about the psalmist, but we do know by the way it was written that this is a very serious lament from a very troubled heart. And this passage, again, is very important to all of us because part of being human is experiencing anxiety. And this psalm is going to reach across the millennia to speak to each of us, each of us to help us address how should I deal with my anxious heart? And as we'll read, we'll see that this psalmist, the person who wrote this psalm, is neck deep in anxiety. It's overcoming him. And as we examine this song of prayer, we can apply this God-honoring process to our own lives. So let's get started. Let's go to Psalm 77. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 to get started here. The psalmist writes of his anxiety. He says in verse 1, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. The first thing we see here, step one in addressing our anxious hearts, is we have to acknowledge our anxiety to God. So let me ask you a question, kind of a probing question. How real is your Christianity? Have you ever talked to God like that? Do you feel that you have access to God to where you can bring questions with language like that to the creator of the universe? This psalmist knew that he had that kind of access, and he used it to be extremely frank in how he laid these problems out. Very candid, very honest, and he's not being shy at all. He's laying it all out there for God. And here he's instructing us through this writing to do similarly, to go to God and lay all of our problems out before him. And the way he does it, as you can see, it's not weak, it's not timid, it's not nice and quiet. 
He lays it all out with a loud voice. The psalmist is yelling out his anguish here. There's that much pain. If you go to a literal translation of the original language of Hebrew, it helps us to understand that coherent speech here has given way to these raw and guttural sounds. Can you feel that in the way that he lays these out to God? And the cool thing to remember is that all Scripture is inspired by God. So God himself, through his Spirit, had his hand in writing these, and he didn't see fit to cut this out so that we wouldn't see how tough this life can be. He saw fit to include it. So we can take that as an example, that we don't have to feel like we need to polish up our lives and take these hardships as they come and take them meek and tenderly and just absorb them. We can be very vocal about it to God. The psalmist is hurting. He's inconsolable, and he's being very vocal about it here. Let's look more closely at these verses and see exactly how hurting he is. Look at verse 1. He says, I cry aloud to God. Right? This is not him praying silently to God in his quiet time. This is not talking very calmly and sheepishly to God in your prayer closet. This is him verbally crying loud to God because of his pain. Look at verse 2. He says, my hand is stretched out without wearying. I'm crying out to God and my hand is stretched out. These two verses are linked with desperation in his voice. It's this plea of, God, please do something. I'm in pain. Please address this pain. And look further in verse 2. He says, my soul refuses to be comforted. He has no place to go. No place to escape this turmoil that's on his life right now. And further in verse 2, we see that there's no physical location that he can go to either. It says it's happening in the night. So it's a very public suffering and a very private one as well. There's no place for his weary heart to go to escape what he has going on. And the result, if you look there in verse 3, it says, I moan. My spirit faints. There's no comfort. Even in his pleadings to God, he's not finding anything to address this hurt. You get kind of the feeling of a rusted nut on a bolt that's so far down inside what you're working on that you can't get a good grip on it. And the more you try, the more you're just stripping that nut away. So every time you try harder, it makes it less and less likely that you're going to come to a conclusion. That's what he's saying to God. God, you're the only tool I have, and the more I use this, the less result I'm seeing. I'm in anguish. Please do something. And you might feel that way in your anxieties. There are things that trouble our souls so deeply that we really resonate with what the psalmist is saying. Then you notice what we don't hear here? We don't hear the voice of God saying, suck it up. We don't hear God saying, stop your whining and rub some dirt on it. God is there, and he loves us enough to hear what we have going on, to receive it, and to understand our need. And you can hear in his voice that the psalmist feels trapped. In the frustration and pain of his soul, he's directing this anxiety back to God, and he's being open and honest about it. So honest that he says in verse 4, if you look there, he says, I'm so troubled I cannot speak. Saying, I have nothing left. 
I'm completely spent. I can't find any help. Game over. I'm out. God understands this. God understands our extreme anxiety. He understands our frustration. And the important thing for us to learn here is that we have his full permission to come and lay it all out in plain language. He's inviting it. Articulate exactly what you're feeling to God when you're struggling like that. He's the only one who's there to relieve that pain and take that stress away. So that's step one. We have to bring our anxieties to him. As we're addressing the anxiety of our heart, we have to bring it to him and vocalize it. But we can't stop there. Because the fight of faith that we're in involves discerning the difference between what we believe and what we feel and who God truly is. So step two as we're going is going to help us draw a line between our feelings and our knowledge of a holy and perfect God. Let's look together at verses 5 through 9 as we see that separation. So after acknowledging his anxieties to the Lord, the psalmist goes on to say in verse 5, he says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Step two is we have to ask questions about God's nature. The psalmist we see here is doing a deep dive for the sake of his heart. He's looking back and he's saying, I have to remember what God has done in the past. And as we're reading this, we have to pay close attention here in verses 5 through 6. There's three verbs to pay attention to. That's consider, remember, and meditate. They're action verbs for us. And each of these verbs invite us to think about God and his works. To think about who he is and what he's done. And as we see here, as the psalmist is engaged in those, as he's considering, as he's remembering, and as he's meditating, he says in verse 6, my spirit made a diligent search. Good. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we have some traction. So what's the shape of the search? Look at verses 7 through 9. They take the form of questions. As he's searching for God, it takes the form of questions, but they're not open-ended questions. They're rhetorical. The psalmist knows the answer of these questions that he's asking. He's asking them to help him remember a time when things were sturdier, a time when he saw God's hand moving, so he can use that to galvanize his faith that God will indeed move again. And when we ask questions like these, it's a great faith exercise for us because asking questions invites answers. Even though at this moment in time, in the psalmist's life and in the life of the people of Israel, there is very little evidence of God's involvement. Even though that's the case, the psalmist is looking back and asking these questions to remind him that God is faithful. So let's look at these questions. In verse 7, 
He's asking, will God never again be faithful? Right? He's asking, is God going to hold me at arm's length forever? And this psalmist knows the writings of Moses that are available to him at the time. He knows that God is faithful, that his faithfulness endures. So as he's asking this question, he already knows the answer, and he's asking in a way to galvanize his faith. The same thing with verse 8. He says, has his steadfast love forever ceased? And with this one, it's neat because he baked the answer right into the question. The word steadfast means endless and unwavering. So what he's actually asking, has the endless and unwavering love of God ended? Of course not. He knows that, and he already included it in the question. And then in verse 9, he goes on to say, is God done being compassionate? Has God decided that one of his attributes is going to be dropped by the wayside? Is he no longer a compassionate God? And the answer is, of course not. Pastor Dan spoke last week. He mentioned the immutability of God, his inability to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who he was in the past, he is now and will be in the future. So is God done being compassionate? He knows the answer is no. It's in the reflection of these questions that he comes to a soul-stabilizing truth about God that he desperately needs to hear. I remember oh, back, I was probably five years old, young childhood. I had an incredible fear. You know, I feel like I might be misleading you guys. So let me rephrase that. From the time that I was about five years old until now, I have, not had, I have a fear of submerged items. Let me elaborate, okay? It sounds crazy. My family knows this very well. You're out in the lake, and you look down below, and you see a tree trunk. Game over. It does something inside of me. I can't explain it. If we're up in Munising, and we stop the pontoon boats over that sunken ship in the bay, and everybody jumps in and snorkels down through it, I'm as far back as I can be. I try to play it up manly, like, I'm going to stay here on the wheel of the pontoon boat, but it's because I am that anxious about that. And when I was young, it even extended to the drain in the pool. If we would go to a campground, I would race to the pool and look at it. Does it have a drain? If so, it's over there. Okay, I'll be on this side as a kid. I won't be swimming over there because it freaked me out. And when I was in elementary school, we took a field trip right uptown here to the water treatment plant. And they took all of us kids up on this big catwalk that was over this massive vat of water. Thousands and thousands of gallons of water being pumped from the river to be cleaned to go out to the municipal water supply. And I'm in the middle, and there's kids clogging it this way and kids clogging it this way, so there's no escape. And they begin to talk to us about this tank below us, and when they did it for a dramatic effect, boom, the lights came on. And down below me, which looked like infinity deep, if that is possible to say, there was a mess of tangled pipes and gauges below the water. It was anxiety city for me. They all had algae that was waving to me, and I lost my mind. I remember gripping the rail of that catwalk, unable to escape, and the only thing I could do was tell myself, it's not real. 
You can swim. Even if you fall in, these pipes... Look, I'm gripping this thing right now just thinking about it. (laughs) Even if you fall in, these pipes can't hurt you. This fear is not real. And I wonder how often is that the case with the things that give us anxiety. We're not stopping to perceive what is real and ultimately who God is. We have his word. It's a guide to help us understand exactly who he is. Again, not who we feel like he should be, but who he truly is. And as we read, we're able to weight our cares and concerns against that God of the Bible. As we read and as we study in church, I hope that you are. If you're not, this may be a gentle nudge to push you in that direction. As you're reading and studying in your own time, I hope you're asking questions through the text. It's part of the hermeneutical process of absorbing the Bible, pulling meaning from it, asking questions about this passage I'm reading. What does this tell me about who God is? What are some truths that I can take to the bank about God? What does this tell me about who I am as a fallen person living in a fallen creation? The third question is, what does this tell me about how I relate to a holy God? And finally, what does this tell me about how I can therefore relate to other people, to share with other people, to love other people? When we quiet our hearts and intentionally search for a better understanding of who God truly is, we find stability in his nature to address our anxious hearts. So as we're addressing our anxiety, we saw the first thing we have to do is acknowledge anxiety to God. Then we have to ask questions about his character, but we also have to take one last step. We have to appeal to that character. The character and nature of God that we find in his word, we have to appeal to that. Let's look at the final verses here, verses 10 through 20, and see how the psalmist appeals to God's character. Then he said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. We see here that we have to appeal to the character of God. And there's a significant pivot in the feel of this psalm here in verse 10. The entire mood of this psalm changes. There's a hinge here from despair to hope. After he expressed his anxiety to God in 1 through 4 and meditated on his nature in 5 through 9, now the psalmist looks back 
on the power and the provision of God to help steady his heart going forward. Look at verse 10 here. This is the hinge. This is kind of like the eureka moment for the psalmist as he's weighing out his anxieties. This is him figuratively slamming his fist on the table. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So what does that mean? What is he appealing to exactly? The right hand of God is a symbol of faithfulness, of provision, of leadership. So when he says this, he says, I'm going to go back and look at the years and years, God, that you were faithful, that you did provide, that you did lead. And I'm going to use that to remind myself that that's who you are today. And that's what the rest of this psalm describes in full detail. As we look at verses 11 and 12, we're going to see again three action verbs. We see them there. We have to take note on them. The first time we saw those verbs, they focused on searching for meaning. But this time the search is over. This time the psalmist has found his target. Now these verbs focus on remembering the mighty and faithful works of God. Look at verse 11 and 12. You see the verbs there. He says, I will remember. What are you remembering? The deeds of God. I'm remembering his works. I'm remembering what he's done. Verse 12, I will ponder. I will think about. Think about what? Your works. The things that you've done. And in verse 12, he double stacks them there. I will meditate. But what are you going to meditate on? Your deeds. What you've done. He's setting his heart on the knowledge that God did move in the past and he will move today for the sake of his anxious heart. And as we work through these remaining verses, the psalmist shows us that the key is that we have to remember the specifics. He points back to the biggest event that he can remember, the psalmist, and that's the exodus of the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's going to vividly describe that redemptive work, and as he's doing it, he's also going to sprinkle in all sorts of other beautiful and vivid examples of God's power and his faithfulness. Let's look at it really closely together. In verse 16, we see him saying, in our darkest and most desperate hour, God, you created these walls of water to usher us to safety. He's using this memory again to strengthen his resolve that God will indeed move on their behalf again. He's focused in on this Red Sea event, but then he takes a step back and he widens the view a little bit. Look at verse 17. We have hints of the theophany at Mount Sinai. The theophany is a time when God's power is allowed to be visually displayed to people. And it was presented in thunder and lightning as the people looked up at Mount Sinai and saw the glory of God. Now he remembers that. He remembers that his God is a God of power. And then he takes a step back even further. In verse 18, we hear hints of his power at creation. When God created the world and it trembled and it shook in his presence. So he's panned all the way back to creation and now as he ends here, he quick zooms all the way back into the Red Sea event again. And that immense power that he just described in those three verses is compacted into what we see as a loving shepherd, a faithful father who takes his people by the hand and leads them in a time of their biggest desperation and their largest anxiety. 
as they were about to be crushed by Pharaoh. These four verses are a great snapshot of unlimited power wrapped up in tender, loving care. And as we search the word, we are shown that this is the character and nature of God. If we click the fast-forward button of time, several millennia, we're in a digital age, we don't have to fast-forward anymore, right? We just skip forward. We come to our present day, it holds true for us. The Psalm 77 formula holds true for us today. We can speak our anxieties complainingly. Back up, Bill. We can speak our anxieties clearly to God. That's step one. Step two is we can probe his word about his nature so that we can understand him better. And step three, we have to appeal to his character. Because as the psalmist appealed to the character of God, he went back to the Exodus and he looked forward to the coming of a Messiah who would make it all right. But for us, as we look back at what God has done, we see it perfected in the person of Jesus Christ. As we reflect on God's provision, we immediately focus on the work of Jesus for our redemption. Just like God the Father would lead Israel by the hand in their despair across the Red Sea, so also Jesus has come to lead us as a good shepherd, taking us by the hand in the moment of our deepest anxiety, in our greatest despair, and lead us away from death and destruction to his salvation. Jesus took our sins. He took our shortcomings, our fears and anxieties. He took them all on himself, and he went to the cross on our behalf. And laden with all of those sins and burdens and shortcomings, he stood dead center in the wrath of God a place that was reserved for us and for our sins. Jesus absorbed it for us. And in that act, he purchased our freedom, that eternal freedom and that perfect peace that Jesus offers is received by us through simple faith. I repent of my sins. I turn to Jesus in faith, and I believe that what he did was sufficient to pay the penalty for my sins. But if we think that it's just about heaven, if we think that salvation through Christ is just about that golden ticket to heaven, we're selling it way short. We're cheapening the gospel if we think that that's all it is. Jesus went to the cross and suffered and died for us so that, yes, we can live with him forever, but also we can live on this earth with the perfect peace that only he supplies so that we can live Christ-honoring lives here on earth and point others toward him. So going forward, as we continue to battle and struggle with anxiety and with pain and with sorrow, we can appeal to the cross of Christ. We have to get our eyes on the greatest work of God that was accomplished through Jesus, and when we get our eyes there, we have to keep them there. So that as we worry about the future, or we worry about our children, or we worry about our finances, and as we are uneasy about our health or our welfare, or as we're anxious about our relationships, 
Whatever we struggle with, we can steady our heart by looking at that cross of Jesus. The Apostle Peter tells us to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. We can do that in full confidence that God is for us. We can do it in full confidence that he has nothing but good planned for us. We can do that because there's concrete evidence that he does care for us. That evidence is a cross. It's an empty cross of pain. And that evidence is a tomb, but it's an empty tomb of hope because Jesus rose. And by faith alone, we can be his. So is anxiety a sin? Back to our original question. Maybe. Maybe not. Being anxious is part of the human condition. We all struggle with it. But being children of the living God by faith in Jesus gives us some place to take that anxiety. And that is the most important part. So when you're anxious, when you're hurting, when you're scared, will you follow these steps that the Holy Spirit wrote through the pen of the psalmist? That he preserved over the millennia for you to read today to apply to your life. Will you do it? Will you take a bold step and communicate your anxieties to God in plain language, telling him exactly how you feel, not sugarcoating it? Will you take time to search out his word and learn who he really is so that you can apply that character of God to your hurting heart? And will you look to that cross of Jesus when you're struggling, when you don't know which foot to put in front of the other next? Look to the cross of Christ. There's power displayed in Jesus. So taking these steps is almost like reaching out and taking the hand of a loving father. He's promised us that when we do that, he will walk with us to a place of peace that passes all understanding. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you've laid it out so clearly for us this morning. We thank you that while the human condition comes with hurts and comes with pain, and we do struggle in this life, that you've told us very clearly that you have overcome this world, and that we can place our faith completely in you. So, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for your gospel, plain and clear, that you left the splendor of heaven for your creation, that you were willing to live with us to experience our hurts and our trials and suffer and die on our behalf. And we're overjoyed to read that you now sit at the right hand of God, interceding for us daily with the words of my grace is sufficient. So, Father, we thank you for that. And we ask that if anybody here does not know you in that way, if they've never truly placed their faith in the Son of God for the forgiveness of their sins, may your Spirit probe their heart this morning. We pray that regeneration would begin, that that heart of stone would begin to beat as a heart of flesh, receptive to the truth of who you are. So God, we lay that all out before you this morning. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the clarity of your word, building our faith and revealing Jesus. Thank you for your love and mercy.
Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today. 